0: Thank you, Patricia. So I put, uh, put this T-shirt on specially this morning and then found I was outdone by the church banner, <laughs> which says exactly the same thing. So now you've got it in stereo, so that's all right, isn't it? Reinforce the message. We'll, we'll more, more of that later. So Liz asked at the beginning how many of you were here uh, last week to hear uh, Sophie speak. And I think it was about half of you. So I think it's worth just re- recapping slightly what we're trying to do with this Eco Church series. Um, this is the second uh, sermon in the series, um, and uh, it's based around Eco Church is based around this programme by uh, an organisation called A Russia UK, and, and it's been set up to help churches to understand uh, environmental impact um, and to work that into church life. Basically, in terms of it's quite broad, in terms of how we manage. The buildings and the the physical fabric, but also how that should impact our worship and how we live as a community. Uh, So, last week, if you're here, Sophie introduced uh, the series, talked about how caring for the planet, caring for creation, uh, is really just a very important, very integral part of being a Christ follower. And especially here in the West, I think it's hard to dispute the fact that over time we have lost touch with the Earth, with just the natural cycles and rhythms of the Earth. And that has created an environment where we have started to turn our backs completely on the natural world to the extent now where we are, I think, really only just fully realizing the consequences of that with sort of these landmark TV shows um, like Blue Planet, a lot of the David Attenborough stuff, uh, the, the acknowledgement of plastics and the problem. All of these things now gradually Coming to the surface and as realizing what's going on, and it's not just a bad thing. It's not just a bad thing that we're sort of trashing our home. We have to see this as an affront to God. This is an affront to Him. This is Liz used those words earlier when she's talking to the kids, isn't she? God, what is God? God is, God is angry about this. God is upset. God is in tears about the state of planet Earth. There is a need for reconciliation, for restoration, and repentance. But this this particular week, this uh, this sermon is going to be really focused around the matter of justice. And in that sense, it's really about the impact on people. The two things are extremely linked, what we're doing to the environment and the impact on people. Again, as you saw Liz showing in that earlier photograph. Now, if you've been following the news in recent weeks you will be aware of these large number of fires that we've been uh, seeing in, these, uh, in the Amazon rainforest in Brazil and in, in the neighboring countries. Um, they reckon that, there's now, that that total has now reached 100,000 fires for the year, uh, which is about 76%, getting on towards 80% uh, increase on last year. Now, the headlines, not surprisingly, have been about the impact, or potential impact on climate since close to 10% of tropical forest is being lost every year due to deliberate fires, uh, illegal logging, agricultural expansion, construction. And obviously that is devastating for the climate in the sense that we are losing these vast areas of forest that are the, what we call the lungs of the planet, right? They, they take in the CO2 uh, and turn out oxygen. But beyond the headlines, what's perhaps less uh, well understood and less acknowledged is the impact on people. Aide and Romildo Rodriguez lived in a rural village uh, in the northwest of Brazil. It's a a region marred for many, many, many years uh, with various land disputes and a a scene of a a number of these fires. So last month, one of these 100,000 fires ripped through their land destroyed their house uh, and killed them both while they were trying to escape. Just one small tragic statistic in terms of victims of environmental injustice. It's estimated that somewhere around 2 billion people globally rely directly on the forests for food, shelter, clothing, fresh water, fuel, medicine... And somewhere around 300 million actually live in the forest themselves. And of course, we're only talking here about one thing, deforestation. Other factors come into play when we're talking about this broader uh, environmental crisis. Climate change is one, and I think that's probably often seen as the most uh, controversial, what impact mankind really is having on climate But it goes way beyond climate change and rising sea levels and those impacts. We're also talking about loss of biodiversity, acidification of our oceans, pollution. So, all of these things um, are contributing to what we're faced with at the moment. And the reality is the reality is that the consequences of environmental breakdown fall hardest on the poorest people in the poorest nations who are the most vulnerable to its effects, and importantly, the least responsible for the problem. I just want to throw, this is an area where you can throw so many statistics. I, I, in my, when I was researching for, for this sermon, uh, I, I came out with reams of stuff, and I've just boiled it down to a few just to give you a little bit of a sense of, of some of the stuff that's, that's happening out there. So number one, the Ivory Coast, which is the world's biggest producer of cocoa has destroyed now, it's estimated, around 90% of the forest cover in the country in order to make room for the cocoa production. It's estimated that over somewhere over 2 million children work in the cocoa industry and their average income is about a dollar a day. Unsustainable water use and climate change impacts, among other things, mean that now around 80% of the world's population are living in areas where there is a threat that the demand for water will outstrip supply. That came from the UN. The poorest 50% of the population globally are responsible for around 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. 50% of emissions attributed to the richest 10% of people. And then here's an interesting one that we don't hear about so much, but it's estimated that there's probably around just 100 companies, corporates, that are responsible for the emission of somewhere over 70% of industrial greenhouse uh, gases since uh, the late 80s. So just a a smattering, and and there there are many more like that. But the picture that very clearly emerges from all of this is this massive imbalance between the haves and the have-nots. And it's not just a case of we've got rich and we've got poor, we've always had that. Now we're talking about the impact, the serious impact that the rich... Are having on the poor, and ultimately, as we'll talk later, on all of us. Now, grasping global scale is difficult, so I'm going to turn this into a little bit of a story to give us a sense of uh, bringing it home a little bit, some of the issues that are being faced. So, I want you to imagine this is your place, okay? You've inherited a large piece of land, 75% ish is woodland, the rest. Is is rough pasture. There's a stream that runs through it. You've got tenants. There's a family that live on the land. They draw water from the stream to drink and to wash. Oh, and they catch fish to eat. Uh, They trap animals for food. They grow a few vegetables in a small allotment, uh, which they sell at a market for a a small income. Now you decide, having got this great piece of land, that you're going to grow strawberries. So you burn away most of the woodland, treat the ploughed land with some chemicals to promote the maximum growth, uh, and hey presto, looks like your strawberries are doing great and you're selling them to waitrose for a decent profit. But over time, what happens here? The animals that live there die out or move away because the food source and shelter has diminished. When it rains... The chemicals from the ploughed land enter the stream, killing many of the fish, but in a kind of double whammy, what also happens is the phosphorus and nitrogen that's on the land spreads and and, uh, rolls into the river, into the stream, and that promotes the growth of plants and algae. They also choke the stream, suck the oxygen, create dead zones in the stream where nothing can live. So the family is now struggling to find sufficient food. Worse than that now, when it rains, the topsoil... Is increasingly disappearing because the woodland trees with their roots are no longer there to bind together the earth. And that's a problem for your strawberries, but it's also a problem for the family because the veggies they're growing in their allotment also get wiped out. And when it doesn't rain, you have no choice but to divert water from the stream diminishing the water supply for the family. Now, eventually, your strawberry yield from your ploughed land starts to diminish, so you decide the only way you can compensate is to burn off the rest of the woodland and sow some more strawberry plants. The family just about has a roof over its head, but no decent source of food or drinkable water. Their already meagre income is reduced to nothing, and they're left with very few choices. They either starve... Or perhaps move to the city where they can try and start again and find some other kind of manual work what a nasty person you are not really right because you would never behave that way and that's not your land so let's make it a little bit more realistic shall we we're going to change the scenario a little bit it's not your land anymore it's your next door neighbor's land there you go Over time, though, having moved in, you've lived there a few years, you've watched what they've done to the land, and here's your new challenge. You love strawberries. You love strawberries, and you're super excited that you can now buy them at a special price from your friendly neighbor, but you've also got to know the family, the tenants, You can see how your neighbour's strawberry production methods are impacting their lives. They're struggling for money and struggling to put food on the table. What do you do? What do you do? You can still get those strawberries. Your neighbour will still sell them. It's still a lot cheaper than Waitrose. But what do you do? Have a little chat. Take out one minute here. Just have a chat to the people around you. What could you do in this situation? What would you do? Anybody willing to put their hand on? Just give us a couple of ideas. Liz has got a microphone here. What are you going to do? You've got a moral dilemma. Any hands? Give us some suggestions. Actually, we couldn't think of anything. We feel totally helpless. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anybody else? Behind you. I wouldn't buy from him. And I'd say to him, really, you need to do something about your land because you're not going to have any strawberries left in a few years' time, and you're just going to be without any money yourself. Okay. Fair enough. Anyone else? Well, I suppose with fresh food, you can read the label to see where it's coming from. Uh, for many strawberries, actually, at the moment, they come from the UK... Grown here, but um, the principle is there when you buy fresh food, look to see where it's coming from and yeah. learn about the countries. Okay, anyone else? Um, I could use some of my income to send to the family that have now got no income and help them out of their problem aid. Help directly, yeah, Becca. We thought that we might like to buy a strawberry patch plot to give to the people who haven't got anything. To so actually give them a give them a, a separate uh, source of uh, uh, being able to do their own food. Yeah. Interesting, interesting variety of answers. And obviously a lot of you are like, well, not sure. It's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, strawberries, you could say, is, is peripheral to this in the sense of, do I really need to eat strawberries anymore? You can make a statement couldn't you? Just stop buying from your neighbor because you don't want to support what he's doing. Or as you say, you could give direct aid to the family. But I think, um, typically, I would hope that as Christians, we would want to do something that isn't just carrying on as normal, seeing the impact that normal has on the family. But it's a difficult situation. I think we have to acknowledge that. But this, of course, is still a bit unrealistic because you don't have such nasty neighbors either, do you? But let's change the scenario again just slightly. Your neighbor is now a large corporation and the land is a little bit further away. It's a bit out of sight. Let's say it's Brazil or it's Colombia, it's Ivory Coast, it's Ghana, places where they don't grow strawberries but they do grow crops that we use extensively or in products we use, palm oils and cocoa. Things that we buy. So now you don't know the owner. You can't see the land from your house. But the family and the tenants are still there. And everything bad that happened to them when our story was about your land or your neighbor's land is still happening. You're still getting your cheap food. Only that one family, of course, is not one family. It's literally millions of people who are suffering from the impact of environmental injustice let's turn to scripture we've given ourselves a base of what is going on and the kinds of practices that are going on what is it that scripture might help us with here well the passage that patricia read to us is from leviticus and that whole chapter chapter 25 is on jubilee Now, Liz mentioned this at the beginning uh, in general what Jubilee was and and Jesus in in Luke 4 picking up on the idea of Jubilee and declaring uh, this is the the year of Jubilee. What did that mean? Well, every seven years would be declared a Sabbath year for the land. So in the same way we have Sabbath day of rest in the week for the land, uh, the, the Israelites had to give the land a rest every seven years. So no crops would be sown or harvested The land would be allowed to rest. Every cycle, uh, or seven cycles of seven years then, 49 years, would result in or lead into a jubilee year. So the jubilee year was the 50th year. Now in a jubilee year, the land would also not be worked, no sowing, no reaping. Uh, You could eat whatever produce uh, appeared during that year, but you weren't allowed to work the land. And the big difference between a normal Sabbath year and a jubilee year was that the land would also return to its original owner. So in effect, if you were the original landowner, you would never really be selling your land. You would effectively be leasing it to someone else for between 1 and 49 years. And God is very explicit in, in those instructions that we heard in Leviticus, that the price charged for that land would be dependent on how many years were left before the next jubilee. So if there's 49 years left, you're obviously going to pay a higher price than if there's only one or two. And in effect, as it says in scripture, you are buying a number of harvests. If someone fell into debt, then Jubilee principles dictated that they could work for their uh, debtor for a a certain period uh, and their work, sorry, they would work for a certain period and that their work would be valued appropriately and fairly to pay down that debt. But if the debt had not been paid off by the time Jubilee came around, then the debt would be forgiven. And that person would be released anyway. So Jubilee was a reset. It wasn't, as some people um, have uh, the impression of, some kind of uh, redistribution process. It didn't really work like that because the land ultimately re- returned back to uh, the original owner. But it did allow those who had got into trouble to reset and be forgiven. Now, in explaining this, I'm not making a case for a uh, recreating the Jubilee system. And in fact, there's, there's, there's evidence in Scripture that even for the people of Israel, uh, Jubilee was never properly implemented, or at least it very quickly fell out of practice. Uh, you can read about that a little bit in, uh, in 2 Chronicles. But it was clearly God's command. And there are some general guidelines about managing the land that we can learn from it. Number one, God owns the land, It is not ours. We are stewards. Verse 3, it says, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Number 2, the land should be cared for and treated with respect. We read in verses 4 and 5, But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Don't sow or prune, don't reap, don't harvest. The land is to have a year of rest. And three, both those who own and those who work the land should be treated fairly. Both sides should be treated fairly and treat each other with mutual respect. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. And this is something that, that Sophie touched on last week. There is a deep and I think spiritually very significant Multi layered relationship that's going on here between God and people and people and people, between God and creation, between people and creation. We were created to join all of creation in worshiping our Creator. And I would suggest to you that uh, it's impossible for us to disrespect the earth and the environment without negatively impacting our relationship with God and the rest of humanity. This is Psalm 96, where it's very explicit, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it, let the fields be jubilant and everything in them, let all the trees of the forest sing for joy, let all creation rejoice before the Lord. So we do impact other people significantly, when we make poor decisions about the environment. And that's why it is a justice issue. And that's why there is so much scripture about justice, about particularly poverty and justice, where God, through his prophets and through Jesus, gives us clear direction on this issue. The Poverty and Justice Bible, I don't know how many of you, uh, do you remember a few years ago, those who've been around a long time, we, we spent some time looking and promoting this particular version of the Bible. It's The version is the contemporary English version, but it particularly focuses on on poverty and justice issues and actually throughout highlights texts that are are specifically around poverty and justice. And there are about 3,000 verses that are highlighted. It's one of the subjects within the Bible that is the most discussed, uh, the most talked about, where there is uh, the most direction. And I wanted to uh, use my shirt... And and this banner over here I can use now as well to re-emphasize that. There is so much scripture on this. But we are called to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. Anyone know where that's from? Exactly. Micah. Micah chapter 6. What does the Lord require of you? Not sacrifices, but mercy. If we go back for a moment to my example of the land owned by your next-door neighbor and their wonderful strawberry farm... I think there was certainly um, a, a general sense from you that there would be something that you would try to do. And of course, what makes this issue so difficult for us is that it's not happening next door. It's not happening on our land. It's so hard for us to see the impact that we're having on other people's lives when we don't see them, can't see it. Now, as part of this sermon series, last week, this week, uh, in the next couple of weeks, we've collectively discussed what can we do in our own small way to change things. And obviously, you've put things on the board here last week. Uh, I'm sure that will be uh, continuing. Some of you have come up with some great ideas as to small contributions we can make uh, to, to this challenge. But my message, my primary message this morning, quite honestly, is not to give you uh, a list of stuff. And I guess I could give you, you know, look for Fair Trade, look for the Rainforest Alliance. There's all sorts of organizations. We've heard uh, mentioned this morning WaterAid, lots of other charities that are trying to help uh, solve these problems. But actually, I think the most important thing that any of us can do is to just look deep into our own hearts and accept there's a problem and accept that right now we in our comfortable society in the West, in our comfortable place here, generally speaking, in Surrey Heath, accept that there is a problem and accept that we need help from God, that we should ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand what to do about it. There is a, there's a scene in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, uh, which uh, I know many of you will be familiar with, where Scrooge is with that spirit of Christmas present. And just before the spirit leaves him, he issues him with a warning. If you remember, if you've seen the movie or read the book, he just pulls back uh, his robe slightly and and sitting there at the the feet of the spirit of Christmas present are two ragged, meager, very poor-looking children, a boy and a girl. And Scrooge says, Spirit, are they yours? And the spirit replies, No, they are mankind's. The boy is ignorance, the girl is want." Beware them both, but most of all, beware this boy. For on his brow I see that written which is doom unless the writing be erased. The girl, want, represents poverty and hunger and homelessness, but the boy, ignorance, well, that represents something else a kind of self imposed ignorance, an unwillingness or a reluctance, perhaps, to wake up and see that what we're doing is causing pain and suffering to others. But the sting in the tail, of course, is that if we do ignore their suffering, we'll sow the seeds of our own downfall. And never was that more true than in this realm of environmental injustice. But I'm not going to leave you with uh, Charles Dickens. I'm going to leave you with Jesus and that well-known account of the sheep and the goats from Matthew's Gospel. At the end of... That particular parable, here's what we read. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me. And they'll answer, Lord, but when did we see you hungry, thirsty, or a stranger, needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and didn't help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. I think what we see here, to those whose response, but when did we see you, Jesus? Jesus says, you should have known. You should have known that feeding my children was important to me, and was the same as feeding me. Ignorance is not an excuse. And it may be inconvenient, an inconvenient truth perhaps to acknowledge this, but you know what? In an age when we can transmit information across the world in nanoseconds, when we can find out what's happening in remote corners of the earth, almost in real time, when we can purchase products online, source from over the world and have them delivered in 24 hours, then I don't think it's too much of a stretch for us to understand that any country in the world is now our neighbour, is now in our backyard, and a worker surviving on the breadline in Ghana or Indonesia or the Philippines is our neighbour. And there are things that we can do, and the first and most important is to make a deliberate and conscious decision and effort to inform ourselves. Because we can be more thoughtful and deliberate, about our purchasing decisions. We can be advocates for justice among our friends and neighbors. We can lobby our representatives and we can pray. The earth and all creation belongs to God. We are his church. Is it not appropriate, therefore, and right that we should be the ones at the forefront of the healing and reconciliation that needs to happen? By being good stewards and being champions of the victims of environmental injustice. Amen.